0: And welcome to another episode of the Circular Economy Show podcast. My name is Laura, and I am hosting this episode along with my colleague, Maya Adams. Hi, Maya. Hi, Laura. Nice to have you here with me. Thank you. In this episode, we are going to hear from Patrick Holden, who is the founding director of the Sustainable Food Trust, an organization that works to accelerate the transition towards more sustainable food systems. And this episode, this conversation was part of our summit 2021. Um, if you want to find out more about this conversation and other conversations we had about th- this topic and others, please uh, check the link on our on the description of this podcast. And just as a reminder, this conversation or this series of conversations was called "Fix the Economy, Fix the Climate." So Maya, in this conversation, we are going to hear Emma Chow, one of our colleagues and the food lead, uh, in conversation with Patrick Holding.
1: What do they talk about? So they talk about a range of things and I think it's really important to note that this was recorded ahead of COP15 and COP26. So there are references to these events. Um but uh I think they're very the conversation itself is still very relevant uh to the conversations that are happening around these uh these uh key issues. And actually Maya, COP15 was moved so it's happening this year for Ex- our audience. Exactly. Hopefully. We hope so. Um so This will be one of our longer episodes because I think Patrick really fleshes out what exactly regenerative natural systems mean uh, to him uh, and the role of leading food companies to uh, the the role that they play in adopting regenerative agricultural practices. Um, I think one really interesting thing for me uh, that he 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 fearlessly discusses i think he has a very um honest opinion on, on on a very balanced opinion of of the climate around regenerative agriculture especially in the uk and he's very uh, straightforward with the challenges and opportunities of of what farmers have in the food industry to make this transition uh to to use uh, regenerative agriculture and he's also really clear um that we really do need to engage with large food companies when developing solutions to fix food and farming systems. And he's really intentional about making, you know, because farming produces some of the most greenhouse gases... Um, the current practices, the current uh, agriculture practices we use today are really one of the main sources of GHG, uh, greenhouse gases. And so he is really advocating for the transition of seeing farming as a part of the solution to climate change as opposed to one of the sources. So we are going to talk a lot about food.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we are going to be hungry after this yeah, episode, Maya. Yeah, I was just going to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very important that we dive into the regenerating natural systems, which is one of the principles of the circular economy. Um, for our audience who might not know, the, our three, the three principles of the circular economy are eliminating waste and pollution, keeping products and materials in use, and regenerating natural systems. Well, Maya, I don't know about you, but I can't wait to hear more from Patrick.
2: Yeah, let's do it. Thanks, Patrick. We're just going to hop right in. Um, regenerating natural systems is one of the principles of circular economy, and there's more and more talk these days in more mainstream conversations around regenerating, regenerative, and I get the question all the time, what does it even mean? So I'd love to hear from you in your words, what does regenerating natural systems mean to you?
3: Yes, uh, there are, uh, there are you might say, political, uh, Though you might say there are a proliferation of terms describing sustainable food and farming systems around at the moment. Some people are using the term agroecological, others regenerative. And I, I was a bit old fashioned back in the uh, 1980s. Uh, I worked on the development of a definition of organic farming, including the uh, dairy standards, as I'm a dairy farmer here in West Wales. But I think the most important thing about whichever term you wish to use. Is that the system of farming addresses the planetary crises of climate change, of biodiversity loss, of the um, extraction of the natural capital, which have been a feature of our intensive farming systems for the last uh, fifty or so years, and operate within future planetary boundaries? The, the, so I think that the um, and that those those same food and farming systems which replace the ones we have at the moment, operate within planetary boundaries, the sort of uh, boundaries that Professor Johan Rockstrom set out uh, in his brilliant work of about a decade ago. So we need to produce as much food as is possible whilst maintaining and preferably building the natural capital of the soil, of biodiversity, et cetera, and minimizing our greenhouse gas emissions, avoiding pollution, And of course, looking after the social and cultural impacts of farming as well. Now, there isn't an agreed definition of regenerative farming out there yet, but I think if we measure the impacts of our food and farming systems against those criteria, we'll be moving in the right direction.
2: Thanks for that. And I think one thing I've learned through conversations like this is that having those common aims for preserving and rebuilding the agroecosystem health, it actually takes a different mindset and different set of knowledge and relationship with the land, which is in quite deep contrast to conventional more kind of cookie cutter approaches to using the same set of practices on different crops in different areas of the world. Would you say that tailoring of practices and that the bundle of regenerative practices indeed varies and needs to be designed for the place, but lead to those same set of outcomes?
3: Yes, I think um, farming in harmony with nature, which is really what we're talking about, does require a different mindset. Uh, It is likely to be, uh, if you are managing a farm, you're likely to have multiple enterprises because it's very difficult to achieve regenerative farming with a monoculture, which means that you're having to be more sensitive and knowledgeable about the impact of your uh, farming practices on the natural capital over which you have stewardship. And certainly here on this farm, I think there are a number of skills that I'm still developing. One learns all the time in farming. And of course, now we need to build a bridge so that the food companies uh, that are buying the raw materials that we produce have an equal understanding of the nature of the farming systems which need to replace the ones we have at the moment.
2: So you're, I want to pick up on a couple of things you just mentioned. First, the companies. You are just mentioning some of the companies that are major buyers from lots of farmers all over the world, of course. Are there any leading examples that you see out there of companies that are starting to make the right moves, build that understanding, maybe build the best relationships with farmers? What does that look like?
3: I think nearly all the leading food companies of the world are aware of the planetary crisis and the uh, the way in which farming has exceeded the planetary boundaries and also aware that their own customers are making new demands on them. So I would say that companies like Leslie, like Unilever, and indeed most food companies at boardroom level are now thinking about these issues. How can they satisfy their customers' Uh, needs and demands indeed for more sustainable products which promote their health but also look after the health of the planet. And I think animal welfare is featuring very largely on the list of customer concerns today. So I think that we can expect more leadership from the food companies. But let's be honest about this. It isn't business as usual if they are going to source the raw materials from the farming systems we've just been discussing. Um, For instance, uh, on most regenerative farm systems there will be multiple enterprises so if uh, a company has been used to buying a lot of grain for instance at quite a low price then those same farms that have been supplying those grains will probably have to diversify into a system which has for instance a soil fertility building phase because those monocultures are extractive and we have to move as the term indicates to regenerative practices and the regenerative phase of a crop rotation probably involves a legume and grass in many cases. So that means a farmer who's been used to producing only arable crops might even have to introduce a livestock enterprise. Plus, I think we can expect grain prices to go up considerably because the truth is that arable production plowing the fields and scattering the seeds, is ecologically expensive and actually financially expensive. And it's only because we've had this extractive phase of agriculture that we've been able to produce apparently cheap food, whilst at the same time degrading the soil and the biodiversity of the farms that we're um, sourcing from.
2: So would you say in the future regenerative food system state, where we have much greater diversity of these different enterprises that you're describing on a farm. Would we see the buying companies having to buy from more farmers for the same ingredient and likely greater diversity or more ingredients from the same farmer? So we'd see a fundamental shift in the buying models and almost the the flows of food being much more distributed than it is today. Do Do you see that as a transition that we need to make?
3: I think that's right. I think that uh, many leading food companies recognise that they have a responsibility to their suppliers to go with them on this transition phase. And that probably means looking at the new mix of crops, including perhaps livestock products that they will be producing and finding a way of sourcing uh, those raw materials as well as the ones they've been sourcing in the past, And of course, that poses its own challenge because it's very handy if you can buy thousands of tons of one particular product from a small number of farms. But supposing those farms diversify as part of their transition to regenerative practices, then that will mean that by definition, they're producing lower yields probably and less of the crops. So that will give distribution problems, it will give storage problems, and of course, uh, as I say, the um, raw materials from the new enterprises also need to find a home, and those problems and challenges will all be part of the transition phase. And let's be honest about this, no one's got the solution to some of these challenging questions. We're going to have to navigate at it as we go, and I also believe that customers are more interested in sourcing their staple foods from the regional country where they live. And that again is going to um, present some serious challenges.
2: So you're a farmer yourself, and we were just talking about some of the, the challenges that we'll need to overcome when it comes to the, the buying of the ingredients. But before even getting to that regenerative state, there's a transition that lots of farmers will need to go through, and that's not an easy transition. And farmers should not be doing this alone either. So what would support from government, from the buying businesses, and maybe even other organisations that are on your mind, what would that look like ideally for you?
3: Well, the good news is that um, nature is resilient, soils are resilient, and I think farming uh, practices uh, of the kind we've been discussing can be applied, even on farms where they food production systems have been pretty intensive um, and nature will recover, the soils will will recover and the system will work. But the challenge for farmers is really all about uh, the money. I mean, let's be honest, we, the farming community, have become commodity slaves producing uh, large quantities of food at quite low prices. And this adjustment is really going to need to take place not just posing technical challenges on the farmers as they transition but also financial challenges so i think that we can expect the prices of the raw materials from regenerative farming to increase substantially and they will need to because otherwise farmers won't be able to make a business case uh, out of regenerative farming uh, there's also a skills transition challenge and i believe that in that in relation to that what we really need is beacon farms we can identify the farms which have already gone a little bit further and make them teaching resources and enable uh the farmers who want to transition to come and visit them either virtually or physically and that way the knowledge can be transferred i'm not arguing against the role of agricultural colleges and uh, the conventional education system. They need to play a part as well. But I believe the best educational stage is the farm and the best transfer of knowledge is the farmer.
2: So you're starting to highlight the economic piece, which is absolutely crucial. And we need to make the economics work. We need to make the market set the right incentives. And there's there's a couple of pieces here. One is linking both with subsidies and also ecosystem service markets which you are starting to see emerge in pockets around the world and there's more and more talk about it what role do you see that playing do you think that's a high potential area
3: yes i think it's very interesting in the future farmers are going to derive their income from three sources from the sale of their raw materials which we've been discussing uh from governments and redirected subsidies whether it's in the european union or the united states or in a post-Brexit UK, where uh, the DEFRA and the devolved nations are, as we speak, redesigning the carrots and the sticks, uh, which will influence farm income. But of course, as you say, there's a third source of income, ecosystem services. Uh, The the farmer perhaps selling offsets, which is very current in the discussion, or, or are being paid in other forms for delivering biodiversity or other forms of public goods so three streams of income we don't yet know the percentage of each which will end up uh, uh, in the balance Uh, but I'm particularly interested myself in whether the market itself can return adequate um, prices to reward a farmer such as myself uh, for producing in a regenerative way and just to give you an example of the scale of the gap at the moment We produce cheese here at this farm from a herd of dairy cows, obviously. And the cheese is, uh, quote, reassuringly expensive, meaning it's out of reach of a lot of the big retailers. So our cheese is sold on specialist discerning markets all over the world, actually. But what are we going to do if we want a lot more uh, cheese of this kind from regenerative production systems? I believe it is possible, but I don't think the price will be as it is at the moment.
2: And how big a role do you see subsidy, reallocation and reform? There's lots of talk about that, especially in, in the EU and UK at the moment, with uh, different policy discussions underway. I mean, does, is that going to help close the gap?
3: Well, I'll be blunt about it. I think that um, we used to get, still do get actually, as all the farmers in the European receive, uh, a kind of social security payment of around £100 an acre Uh, as long as we don't break the law and we produce in a reasonably responsible way. Now, the question is, what's going to happen to that money in the future, both in the European Union, but also in the United Kingdom? And my answer to the question is that we need as much as possible of that amount of money to be uh, offered to us, conditional upon the adoption across our whole farms of regenerative farming practices. There's a lot of talk about stewardship, and stewardship, I think, is really a sticking plaster solution. It's greening the edges, not the middle. We need to green the middle if we're going to build our soil carbon stocks. And to do that, we need money. And the, the lion's share of the Common Agricultural Policy subsidies, or indeed the redirected farm bill subsidies, should go to regenerative farming practices across the whole farm. And I think there is hope here, because in Wales, where I'm speaking to you from, Uh, The Welsh Government understand that, and I believe that it's quite likely they're going to introduce a sustainable farming scheme, which is going to do exactly as I've just suggested, put most of the money into a whole farm, regenerative farming approach.
2: So as we start to ramp up to some of the events coming up later this year, namely COP15, COP26, and there's more and more discussion around NBS, nature-based solutions, For many, that's even, it might be a new term for people tuning in. So would you be able to briefly describe what are nature-based solutions and how does agriculture fit into it? Does it fit in? Is it a nature-based solution?
3: Well, this is a really interesting question. I'm not sure I can answer uh, your question, what are nature-based solutions? What I hope they are is farming in harmony with nature across the whole farm, minimising your use of practices and inputs which cause harm to nature and therefore producing food which can, in a way which can coexist with biodiversity. And just to give you a couple of examples, we don't use nitrogen fertiliser here. We never have in 48 years. And because our pasture management relies on clover and other legumes to fix the nitrogen, the grasslands uh, can carry a wide variety of wild plants, which would probably be suppressed if we had used nitrogen fertilizer. And similarly, we grow crops, in our case to feed our cows, of oats, which we mix with peas. And if you look at the understory of that crop, there are many uh, wild plants, arable weeds, you might call them, growing in the base of the crop Not in proportions which threaten the yields, but sufficient to nourish insects, soil invertebrates and other uh, wildlife, which are the bottom of the biodiversity food chain. So I think that there is a huge debate going on in the world at the moment, uh, roughly characterised as land sparing or land sharing. And the land sparers believe that we can produce enough food to feed the world if we concentrate our food production on the most fertile soils in the most resilient arable areas, thereby making more room for rewilding and nature reserves. Uh, Now, if that's nature-based solutions, I'm against it because I think the better way is to farm in harmony with nature, uh, a land-sharing approach, in other words, as I've just described, across the whole of the farmed area. And I do believe it's a fork in the road The Climate Change Committee for the United Kingdom are are advocating what I would say is a land-sparing approach. But I don't think they understand agriculture, and that's one of the problems of these people who are designing the solutions. If they're not well-versed in the practice of agriculture, they may get the wrong solutions.
2: Can you make it clear for for everyone tuning in, how can these more regenerative practices and, and ways of cultivating food and farming, actually help mitigate climate change? What would you say to those yes. those people who don't understand?
3: Well, I think the, the good news is that the soil is the world's second largest carbon bank after the oceans. And what we've been doing during the extractive period of food and farming, through no fault of the food companies or the farmers involved, because we didn't realise what we were doing, is we've been running down the stocks of natural capital, principal amongst which is the carbon in the soil. And if we shift to regenerative farming, to biologically based farming, we can reverse that decline to such an extent that some people are saying that we could take up to a hundred parts of CO2 out of the atmosphere and lock it back up into the soil. And of course, part of that carbon will be represented uh, by plants, plant roots trees, of course, um, and the biomass, which is coexistent with regenerative farming. And this is really exciting because, as far well as I know, apart from technologies which are not yet proven, this method of regenerative agriculture is the only way we can actually take CO2 out of the atmosphere. But it requires a change of approach, as we've been already been discussing, and this needs to be taken to scale. It can't be confined to a small percentage of the farmed area. We need to think about this as being applied on all the farms throughout the world. And we need to develop a new way of measuring the impact of the farming system, uh, hopefully endorsed by a kind of Paris Agreement for Food, which I hope will be uh, discussed at the COP26 and beyond. Um, That way, we can say, yes, now farms become part of the solution not part of the problem as they have been in the past.
2: So what you're speaking about, and I think this is the amazing part about food and agriculture, is through the soils, through building these healthy soils and taking care of them, we're able to start to well lock in the carbon in the ground and then... Be able to sequester more and more, but there's also often overlooked is the emissions that are created from the inputs that go into agriculture, right? Because there's the on-farm, but also we often don't realize how many emissions are created through the like processing and creation of fertilizers, look in, in addition to the extraction of finite resources. So there's both everything that's happening even before you get to the farm level, and then there's everything on-farm too, so there's it's very complicated, <laughs> but yes, the good but news is... Yes, I think you put it... Go ahead.
3: I think you put it very well, um, and the issue is how can we reduce the emissions from farming, and that the system of production that I've just described of regenerative farming, biologically based, includes a crop rotation, which is regenerative, and then a depleting phase of the cropping. But of course, in order to produce food from the regenerative phase, which in many, many parts of the world will be probably a mix of grass and clovers, we will need uh, grazing livestock. And of course, uh, in the big climate change debate, um, ruminants, which are the grazing livestock which can convert clover and grass into food that we can eat, have been demonised as being part of the problem because of their methane emissions. And uh, certainly the UK Climate Change Committee are seeing ruminants as part of the problem, not part of the solution. Now, I've got to declare my interest here. I'm a livestock farmer with a herd of dairy cattle, so I'm part of the problem in that respect. So I would say this, wouldn't I? But what I would suggest is that there have always been herbivores uh, on the planet, whether it was bison on the plains of North America or the um, great vast herds of antelope. Uh, in Africa, and they have been responsible for building some of the world's most fertile soils. And not only that, but a report produced by the FAO in 2008 called Livestock's Long Shadow, which was really the first major report which suggested that methane from ruminants was part of the problem, overestimated the impact of methane on climate change. And a chap called Professor Miles Allen of Oxford University has set out a new way of calculating methane emissions just a couple of years ago, which is now causing a rethink about the role of ruminants in sustainable agriculture. What I would say is that although the science isn't absolutely definitive on this, if you practice holistic grazing, mob grazing, rotational grazing, various descriptions, and you get the farming system right, you can meet what the french minister La lafolle suggested would be a target at the cop21 in paris where he said the farmers of the world should build their soil carbon by 0.4% per year in other words the 4 per 1000 initiative and that soil carbon will offset the methane from the ruminants, which we need to produce food from this regenerative pasture phase of the rotations. Sorry, that's a bit of a long and complicated explanation, but these issues are really important.
2: That's great. Thank you. And, and I want to hone in a bit on biodiversity as well, because climate has been such a focus. And then especially going into this year with CBD COP15, there's we're seeing biodiversity raise up the global agenda quite quickly. Um, and I think what's interesting is how food can be addressing biodiversity loss at multiple levels because as you were describing earlier going from conventional to regenerative production means that we're diversifying you just you just have to right it's inextricably interlinked and so that is promoting the diversity of what we're growing cultivated biodiversity and then there's also the on farm biodiversity and and beyond the farm as well. Could you describe how regenerative practices can promote the above and below ground on-farm biodiversity and also what's around, like surrounding waterways, hedges, etc.?
3: Yes, I, I'll have a go at that. Uh, but before I do, I think that in a rather mean way, you could describe the old approach to nature conservation as food factories and parks. You know, we we, we farmed intensively on the best land and farmed quite exploitatively, but never mind, because we had oases of biodiversity, uh, which were the subject of all the David Attenborough films. And now we've realised that because the population has expanded, uh, the vast majority of the habitable areas of our planet are farmed and therefore, Farming has to become part of the solution in biodiversity terms. So perhaps I could give an example of this farm um, where we we haven't got a lot of woodland. We haven't really. We've got a lovely pond and we've got some other wild areas that we've set aside. But the vast majority of the land is farmed, Uh, not intensively, as I've described. We haven't used any nitrogen fertilizer now for 48 years. But what is interesting is that I just saw this morning red kites and buzzards, on our grain fields, which I think are there eating uh, worms, which, of course, course we have millions of worms. They're another form of of soil, livestock. But we also have hares, and we have a huge diversity of farmland birds. We have bats. We have butterflies. And I know from my own personal observation that we have a greater abundance of all these species than our neighbours who are using, for instance, a lot of nitrogen fertiliser. Now, what matters is that we find a way of measuring the impact on biodiversity of the farming systems which we've been discussing and make that a global language so that I can go to the other side of the world, even though, say, in Australia, they will have different birds, small mammals, etc. Well, indeed, not many mammals, except for the ones that have have been brought in. And I can have a sensible conversation with that farmer. What's your biodiversity index? What's your soil carbon index? What is your water index? And we can use the same units of measurement to compare. And that way, for food companies who are trading internationally, they will have a new language and a new way of evaluating the impact of their farming systems on the food food that they trade with. And I believe, you know, we've just had this big debate in the UK about the Australian trade deal, where our government is suggesting zero uh, tariffs for trade, I believe that's profoundly wrong for trade in food. What we now need is a new Paris Agreement for food around which all trade is restricted only to regenerative farming methods. So if, for instance, uh, we want to import some Australian uh, beef or cheese or whatever it is, the answer would be yes, yes tariff-free as long as the production system is regenerative and not causing harm. But if it is causing harm, the trade should either be banned altogether or subject to tariffs. That agreement could be made or the the foundations of it could be laid at the COP26 if we get our act together.
2: So if we achieved a a global landscape where, as you're describing, all these different countries are having farmers measure the same metrics on their farms, would we, how would we know what was regenerative or not? Well, we need some sort of Well, you threshold? could have a scoring
3: system. You could have a scoring system, for instance. So let's say we've been trialing this uh, framework of categories and units of measurement. Um, let's say a perfect score was 100, uh, and there were 10 categories of impact assessment. Um, you could, a particular food company would be wanting, for instance, to... Uh, follow up its net zero ambitions. So this assessment would be able to give the data which would inform that food company as to whether the farm was making progress towards net zero, but not just on emissions. The customers of that company would also have an interest, for instance, in water sourcing and purity and biodiversity impacts. So each of these categories of assessment would provide vital information to food companies, which would inform their sourcing policy, and that way, that could e- it could even find its way onto labels. There's no reason why we cannot have a labelling system which carries this information to our final customers, as we already do with electrical white goods. We have an energy efficiency uh, chart, and why can't we have that sort of approach to food products? Because at the moment, there is uh, a confusing array of certification marks. Not that they're all bad by any means, but it's very difficult to navigate between them all. What is the difference, for instance, between organic and red tractor and leaf in the UK? Uh, You need to have a PhD to understand the difference between some of these schemes. And I'm not even sure that I do all the time. Whereas if you had a common sustainability assessment system, it would be easier.
2: So making that common understanding more widespread. I, I'm with you. It's very complicated right now and difficult. I, I too can't decipher them all in the grocery store.
3: <laughs> we need to though. You know, here's another thing. I've been farming here all these years. I'm organic and I'm inspected every year by the Soil Association. And I hope helped write the organic dairy standards. But what I really want to know now is whether my soil organic matter is going up, whether my biodiversity index is positive, whether my water is cleaner, whether my emissions are lower. I do not get that data from my current inspection system. I don't believe I'm alone in wanting to know those aren't the answers to those questions. I believe every farmer in the world now, in their hearts, wants to farm in a nature-friendly way. But we want to know, first of all, how to do that. And then secondly, we want to measure the impact of our farming systems on outcomes, and we want to know that every year. I want to know, and I think I'm a focus group of one representing a lot of farmers all over the world who would feel so proud if they knew they could produce food in harmony with nature.
2: You're really holding in on what I see as the heart of regenerative production, which is the focus on these outcomes. And it is a shift from some of these other certifications or approaches in the past that are more focused on the practices or the inputs. And so if we focus on the outcomes, we can also look beyond food. We've been discussing a lot about food, um, but regenerative production is more broadly encompassing. And as we move as well towards an economy and world that is using more and more bio-based materials rather than finite and fossil fuel-based materials, um, we're going to be using more and more that's coming from nature. And so how do you see the application of regenerative practices to these non-food goods as well?
3: Well, um, presumably you're speaking about the whole uh, apparel industry um, uh, and uh, all the uh, output of uh, forestry programs. Are these the kind of things you're, you're meaning?
2: Exactly, and, and all sorts of materials, maybe even materials that haven't been innovated yet from maybe like agricultural residues that we could make bioplastics out of or all sorts. Yeah.
3: Yes, well, I mean, I, I think if this new framework of categories and units of measurement, this metric, global farm metric, is any good, it ought to be able to be applied to all forms of land use. Because, for instance, there are many companies now looking at uh, manufacturing uh, artificial meats. And I think that whether or not that um, system or those systems of producing uh, foods from a laboratory are any good, needs to be assessed against the equivalent measure uh, of land-based activities, for instance, with livestock. Um But, if you come out of the food sector and into some of the other uh, potential outcomes of land use, yes, I think it's essential to use a common framework of impact assessment because then we can make uh science based judgments about the efficiency of land use in producing these products and one uh, I may have got this wrong, but as I understand it, um, producing biomass out of solar energy, using plants, in other words, is only 19% efficient. In other words, only 19% of the sunlight falling on a uh, a square metre of land is actually captured by even the most efficient plants. So I think if we're going to uh, switch to, for instance, biofuels, we need to be quite sceptical. What we've done, if you look at what we've been doing over the extractive period of agriculture... I think it's true that it's something like uh, 150 million years of ancient sunlight fell on planet Earth to build up the stocks of coal, oil and gas, which we've managed to use half of in 75 years. So if I've got my calculations right, we're using fossil fuels at 2 million sunlight years a year. And we if we think we can just replace that with biofuels, I think we're fooling ourselves. I think that the uh, new regenerative energy systems, PV, solar thermal, etc, are much more realistic in terms of substituting our energy needs and that 's that's great news because if we can do that, hopefully we, there are other technologies we can harness to help us farm better in a more regenerative way. i don 't think we should turn our back on technology, but we need to, uh, a good uh, way of assessing its impact. Uh, against the existing farming systems and the regenerative ones that we're now developing.
2: And what's coming to my mind too, when you are just mentioning timber earlier, was agroforestry systems, which is integrating trees. And you were speaking about livestock earlier. You can also see the trees and livestock in silvopasture systems, which can be quite effective and very regenerative. Um, So do you see a growing market for farmers to, again, be going maybe, you know, farmers who are growing one food crop today, as they go on this regenerative journey, actually diversifying into other sectors of the economy that they're selling their goods to?
3: Yes, I think that is possible. I mean, this agroforestry development is relatively new, although pastoralists have been around for a long time. And you could even argue that the small fields of the United Kingdom are a form of um, uh, combining food production uh, with hedgerows and trees in hedgerows. So the it's not exactly new, but I think what is new is growing, for instance, uh, avenues of fruit trees uh, coexistent in strips with arable crops, and getting more than the sum of the parts from the combination for lots of reasons. I've seen some of those farming systems. Uh, prototypes in the United Kingdom, and I can imagine that they will spread more widely. It's obviously particularly interesting if the trees that are grown are fruiting trees or produce nuts or whatever food it is that uh, can be eaten as part of the farming system. And I certainly think there's potential for that. But again, it's, it's going to take time because just even establishing those uh, orchards and trees uh, is is a long, long-term process. And I think that the biggest short-term win is a shift of mindset that we have to move from chemically-based food production systems to biologically-based. The, there's an interesting question arising from that, which is that how will the transition work? We, we don't necessarily want to go cold turkey. It may be that we have a mix of uh, but more biological approaches and uh, regenerative pro- uh, chemical approaches in the transition period. But certainly from my experience, um, if I was to take on a big pass of land tomorrow, uh, and I was offered the choice of gradually weaning that land off chemical inputs or going more rapidly into a biologically based system, if I could afford it, I would do the latter because I believe nature restores more quickly if you are not using pesticides, fungicides, and herbicides, um, and indeed even the use of nitrogen fertilizer, there's more and more evidence emerging now that if you use nitrogen, it does suppress the uh, microorganisms, particularly the fungal organisms in the soil, upon which plants depend for their digestion. So ironically, by using nitrogen fertilizer, you're making yourself more dependent on it as a farmer.
2: We've been talking a lot about soil-based production, but we haven't spoken about the ocean and what I'll call like sea-based production. Of course, there's, there's fisheries around the world, but we've seen some innovators doing quite neat things with seaweed and algae. And, and do you have any views on those sorts of innovations or, or what regenerative a regenerative production system would look like incorporating the sea and ocean as well?
3: Well, I, I should profess fairly profound ignorance on this. But what I could say is that I, like millions of other people, have watched the film Seaspiracy just in the last few weeks. And like my 13-year-old son, who also watched it with me, his take-home uh, conclusion was, Dad, I can't eat fish anymore. Well, I love fish. And so I want the question, what fish can I eat to be part of the solution, to be answered by the food companies of the world. And I'm sure, as most people will agree, the existing certifiers came in for not inconsiderable criticism on sea spiracy. My conclusion was I can probably only safely eat fish at the moment if I know the story of the fishing boats that caught it. uh, They're probably local or I caught it myself. And I can't believe that it won't be possible as things go forward to develop certification schemes for wild harvesting of fish, which is effectively what fishing is, uh, which prevent uh, all the discards and the bycatch and the killing of uh, cetaceans, dolphins and whales and everything um, by use of webcams and other technologies. I hope so. Uh, But whether aquaculture um, and the harvesting of farmed foods from the ocean can go to a great scale without being part of the problem as we have seen with terrestrial agriculture I think is as yet an unanswered question I mean when I was at the soil association we licensed organic salmon but I'm I have to say that you know a number of years later um I don't think we've solved the problem of um sustainable and regenerative salmon farming. It may be that the species is the wrong one to focus on, but let's hope we can come up with answers on that front as well.
2: Thanks, Patrick. Okay, we just have a few minutes left, so I've been asking you lots of questions, um, but I wanted to see if there's anything else that we didn't touch on that you'd like to share with viewers today.
3: Um, I think I would like to say, you know, there's a big discussion in the regen agriculture movement, um, about how we can achieve this huge change. and We shouldn't underestimate the challenge, the scale of the challenge, and whether the large food companies, which currently predominate in the developed world and the retailers, can be part of the solution uh, rather than, as some people would see it, a more radical, bottom-up, Uh, revolutionary approach, uh, starting with very small disruptive uh, systems, which are very, very different from the ones we've come to rely upon. Um, My answer is, we have no choice. Even if we have our concerns about very big food companies, we have to work with them. We have to engage constructively. And whose fault is it that we've got the food systems that we have at the moment? The answer is, it's all of us. Because we buy food, We've become obsessed with the cheapness of food. We haven't realised the downstream consequences of our actions. And so now we, working with the big retailers and the big food companies, need to develop a new story which satisfies the tough questions of citizens, because we all eat food. And if we can do that, then we can say that the food and farming systems of the planet can become part of the solution. I definitely believe they can. And indeed, I think they must, because if you think about it, we are in the last chance saloon on climate change and biodiversity loss. The farms now cover the planet, as I said earlier. So what we do over the next 10 years to our food and farming systems is absolutely critical to handing on uh, a planet which is livable to those that follow us.
2: Amazing, thank you, Patrick. So Laura, what a great
1: conversation. Um, I think one thing that I've really noticed in this conversation and the previous conversations that we've had is that leaders in these spaces are really calling for a change in mindset, a change in mindset to whatever aspect of the economy that they're looking at. And in this specific episode, um, Patrick is really talking about a shift in understanding what regenerative nature means and the possibilities of what farming could mean to farmers and um, you know, by, by effect, what it means to us as consumers. So I think his vision of farming in harmony with nature is really a great one to push forward and really resonates with the three principles of the circular economy.
0: Yes Maya I thought it was a brilliant conversation because we in the conversation we can hear about how he talks about you know the role of big food companies but he also talks about the importance of having better metrics to understand what we mean by you know this product or uh, that we would have in a circular economy for food um and I also think that um he talks about how in general we just need to reconnect in a way Mm -hmm. uh, food production with nature how we need to um, see I guess like our food for what it is you know it comes from nature and and I just think like in a way maybe us as users as customers we've missed uh, that link uh, especially like I guess in the last decades Do, do you agree Maya
1: I completely agree. And he's really pushing forward um, radical changes in scale. You know, I, I, one thing that caught my attention was his, his when he said, let's have a Paris agreement for regenerative agriculture. I think um, that's amazing and um, quite ambitious. Quite ambitious. And I'm really looking forward to something along those lines happening. Yeah, we need
0: more radical ideas for sure in this next decade. Exactly. Thank you, Maya. And unfortunately, this is all we have time for in this episode of the Circular Economy podcast. But the good news is that we have plenty of podcasts coming up in the next weeks. Um, Just as a reminder, we have one podcast coming out every week. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please, we ask you to share it. We ask you to subscribe. We ask you to rate this podcast. We want to get better every week. So your feedback is really important. Anything else you would like to add, Maya?
1: I would say that if you would like to see more content like this, go on our YouTube channel and watch the summit episode like Laura mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. Uh, Fix the economy, fix the climate. I think that will be worth your time.
0: Yes, Maya. Uh, I look forward to the next podcast next week. See you next week.
1: Yeah, see you then.